Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I recently had the great pleasure of talking with Scott Cook about the Bamboo Texts of Guodian, a study and complete translation. This came out with the Cornell East Asia series in 2012. This is an absolutely phenomenal and kind of game-changing scholarly achievement. What it is is two volumes both of which include detailed transcriptions, translations, and really rich commentaries on and introductions to all of the Guodian texts. These were texts on bamboo strips that were recovered from a tomb in Hubei in 1993, and they are just massively fascinating and important and interesting documents for all kinds of reasons. Now, I won't um, talk too much about it because you'll hear a description of them and of many of the texts that are included um, within the corpus of, or the, at least the group of Guadian texts in a moment. But I will say that this was an interview I was particularly excited about because having this resource really transforms how we can not just learn about, study, and do research on the history of early China and with early China, it also transforms our teaching about this context and this history. So it's a very exciting volume. It was really a pleasure to talk with Scott about it, and I hope you have a chance to get a copy of the um, the two volumes, take a look at them, use them. They're really, really useful, and they're laid out in a way that really facilitates use in the classroom as well as in research, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Scott Cook about his awesome new book, The Bamboo Texts of Guodian, A Study and Complete Translation. Scott, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm really, really delighted to talk with you about this really impressive project. So thank you for making the time. Well, thank you, Carla. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm uh, looking forward to speaking with you about that. <laughs> so could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to the study of early China? Um, I guess it's uh, pretty much the way anybody comes about their their, their career path. It's a combination of um, both interest and accident. Um in terms of specifically how I arrived here, I I actually started out um, my college studies as a as a music major. I I, I took some um, Chinese in college, but uh, my focus uh, was originally on music. And it wasn't until I was pursuing a, a master's in music theory that I really got back to the study of Chinese and um, it developed or it continued to cultivate, let's say, a, an intense interest in the language itself. Um, so at, th- at that point, I came back with, you know, taking 30-year Chinese, classical Chinese, and um, after getting my master's in music theory, I decided, you know, music really wasn't the route I wanted to go. I really, in some ways, better suited to, to the study of language than I was to music. And uh, um, although both have remained intense interest for me uh, throughout my life. Um, so I went to Taiwan for a year and studied intensively at the IUP program there, um, you know, both modern language and, and classical, and, and came back to uh, pursue a, a PhD in, in Chinese um, at, at that point. So it was kind of a circuitous route for me to get into um, the study of early China. But um, early China specifically, I, I really fell in love with the classical Chinese language. Um, so for me, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't so much the route that some some academics have um, have taken, where they have started off with an interest in Chinese philosophy, perhaps, or Chinese religion, having having read something in translation that really piqued their interest. For me, it was really the other way around. Um, interest in the language first, and through the language, um, getting uh, interested in the text, and it's kind of snowballed from there. So that's really interesting, um, in part because I know as somebody who's sort of spends a little bit of time dabbling in trying to learn musical instruments uh, myself, just as a total neophyte. There are a lot of commonalities between studying language and studying music. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and music actually will come up, I think, I hope later on in our conversation, because one of the texts explicitly talks about the importance of music um, to education um, and to human nature later on in, as we get into the text. Right. It's actually really interesting to hear. So the book that we're talking about today is one of these game-changing texts and game-changing resources in a field. And I say that without hyperbole and in complete honesty. It's a massive two-volume study, transcription, and translation of the bamboo texts recovered in 1993, I think, from a tomb in the village of Guodian in Hubei province. And this was a tomb that was interred in the Warring States era. This is the kind of book that is, and we'll sort of get to this later, this is really, it, it transforms the possibilities of teaching with and about China and of studying with and about China, and I think will for some time. And so congratulations. It's something I'm actually really excited about having the chance to feature on the channel. So given that, well, my pleasure, what brought you to the project in the first place? Can you situate your work on this project within your larger trajectory of research interests? Sure. Um, so uh, Beginning from uh, uh, my first graduate studies in Chinese, I was uh, gravitated toward the Warring States period in the uh, is because it's one of the most exciting times in early in, in, in Chinese thought um, with the you know the, the period of the hundred schools, um, each offering competing visions of statecraft, um, and and just trying to I was very interested in kind of sorting it all out, um, looking at the connections between different thinkers and and trying to figure out. In, in my own way, how the intellectual history of the uh, of the period played itself out. Um, so I've always been interested in, in a lot of different thinkers and, and ideas of that period and how they relate to one another. Um, now, um, I won't argue with you about the importance of the work insofar as the work that I'm uh, not not my own work, but the work that of the Gordian uh, manuscripts themselves, because these really are extremely important um, for the study of, of, of early China, because really nothing like them has been discovered since uh, the third century AD. Um, and so when they came out, uh, really the only authentic um, archaeologically excavated texts that um, that are philosophical texts to actually date from the Warring States period. Um, so once they came out, there was a flurry of, of scholarly activity on them. There's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles coming out in uh, in China, not to mention Taiwan and Japan, and also a lot of interest in, in the West as well. Um, so they're, they're naturally um, kind of earth-changing in, uh, in, in, in that regard. Um, I just happened to be the only scholar that was crazy enough to try and actually um, <laughs> uh, translate the whole damn thing. So um, that's, that's, how, but uh, it was really natural for me to, to kind of come and focus on these texts, given my, my overall trajectory of what I was studying. And how long did that, uh, did the entire project of translate, transcribing and translating these texts take for you? It was, I mean, this, this took, and, and as, as it should be, it took quite some time. Yeah. About thirteen years, yeah, yeah. Um, pretty much, pretty much from the time they first came out, um, it was uh, uh, it's been ongoing ever since that time, and that's part partly due partly due to uh, well the enormous complexity of the text himself and all the amb ambiguities in term in coming up with a an interpretation, but also just because sorting through all the massive of of scholarship that's been written on these texts, especially in China. Uh, now, in the course of talking about also the um, the text in the book, I think we're, we're going to have an opportunity to today to talk about some of the aspects of that process that actually you know, make it so extraordinarily different from other processes of textual study for those of us who can even go to a rare books library and you know look at a Ming text. And I mean, that's not the kind of process that went into transcribing and translating these. And so we'll get into those, I, I think, really fascinating elements of craft um, and sort of to see why something like this would take 13 years. And I'm actually amazed that it only took you, frankly, 13 years. Well. Um, so that's kind of amazing in and of itself. So let's, in order to give listeners who may not be familiar with uh, the texts themselves, but also with the importance of and the nature of excavated texts for the study of China, let's kind of start with the tomb and then work our mm -hmm. way to the fragments and then the texts themselves. So could you start us off by saying a little bit about this? Um, what's the, What was the nature of this tomb? Who was the tomb occupant? And what was the context, basically, in which these fragments and these textual um, elements were found? 
Okay, well, the tomb itself is is relatively nondescript. It's like many other tombs in China. Um, I mean, the first important thing to know is it's from the region of, of the state of Chu, which uh, during the Warring States was kind of on the cultural pro- the southern cultural periphery of China and had in many ways its own uh, unique characteristics. Um, the tomb itself, it's you know, it's a typical like a rectangular. Um, earth-built uh, vertical shaft uh, constructed tomb, which has a, a, a sloped rectangular ramp. Um, and it's, it's, there's a cof- there are inner and outer coffins, and the outer coffin is divided into three different sections. Um, but the important thing to note in all this is that the, all the, you know, the construction techniques of the tomb, of the coffin, and um, what remains of the vessels, be, given that the, the tomb was looted um, prior to, to excavation, um, all indicate that it, it bears uh, Chu cultural characteristics, which is important in the dating of the tomb because in 278 BC, uh, the state of Qin sacked the capital of Chu, and at, from that point forward, all the tombs of the, um, of, of, the of the area bear Qin characteristics rather than Chu. So we know that the, the very last possible date of interment is 278 BC. Um, as far as the occupant goes, we only know for sure that he was a um, a male occupant based on you know some of the the walking the, the, the staffs that are found in the tomb, along with all the, the various weapons and 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 things of that nature, um, and based on the types of uh, vessels that he had um, and, and things of that nature, and the construction of the tomb itself, it was probably a member of the mid to lower nobility of the state of Chu. Um, some have speculated based on very scant evidence that he may have been a tutor to the uh, crown prince. Mm-hmm. And this is based primarily on the fact that there was a, um, a, a, a lacquer ear cup excavated that, that had on its underside um, the inscription that read either uh, or so it's either um, tutor of the eastern chamber or simply cup of the eastern chamber, an eastern chamber referring ostensibly to the residence of the crown prince. Um, and then there's debate about whether that last um, character was standing for bay or for sure. Um, and, if, and in any case, it's very scant evidence by which to go. Um, we only know that texts were very important for this person because they were um, they saw fit to accompany them in, into his afterlife. But other than that, we don't really know a whole lot about the um, the actual status or the actual occupation of the tomb occupant. Now, you mentioned that this is from the state of Chu. The texts actually were not written in standard Chinese characters, but rather they're written in Chu script. And this actually becomes a really important part of, at least from the perspective of, of this reader, right? The process of what mm-hmm. it meant to work with and actually create a text, right, out of the fragments. So what's important for us and for listeners to know about the Chu script in order to appreciate the nature of the text and the work that you had um, and that, that was involved in your translation, transcription, and study of them. Okay. Well, so the, the Chu script is one of um, a number of regional variants, right? There is what's what we refer, refer to in the Warring States as the, the script of the six states, because each state had its own regional uh, varying forms of, of, the, of the Chinese script, um, which were wouldn't be standardized until the advent of imperial China during the Qin and the Han. Um, and so... Um, I, I guess the most important thing um, to know is that that the uh, that these scripts had their own orthographic conventions, um, which is to say, um, uh, certain characters may be written without the the semantic classifier that we would we would be accustomed to seeing um, based on land, later standardized um, orthography, or um, Certain characters would be used, you know, primarily out of phonetic considerations to represent words that we're not accustomed to seeing them represent. Um, so a lot of a lot of um, words that were used purely as phonetic loans or were used um, in, in ways that may have been somewhat standard to a, 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 choose, a, a choose scribe, um, but that 
that, that it's difficult for us to recognize. Um, but there's also an awful lot of um, arbitrariness in terms of what characters were chosen to represent a, a word, even within the same sentence. Um, a character may represent, maybe written, clearly representing the same word, but written one way in one half of the sentence and a slightly different way in the uh, other half of the sentence. On the other hand, you also have words like um, shung, for instance, uh, the sage, uh, which could be used to represent three different words, right? Uh, sage, sound, shung, or ting, to listen. So um, you have all these ambiguities um, in trying to interpret the true script um, or really any script of that time um, that you really don't have with scripts that were written or, or texts that were um, transmitted from the, the Han Dynasty onward, or even warring state scripts that were kind of reassembled during the Han and converted into standard orthography. Thank you so much. So this is just the, or not necessarily the first, but one of many, many aspects of um, interpretation, recombination, and different kinds of work that goes into the final, or that went into the final product of actually compiling a transcription and translation of these texts. And one of these important stages has to do with sorting and arranging the texts. Now, for listeners who aren't familiar with this kind of a set of documents and this kind of excavated text, this was not the case in which you had accessible to yourself and other scholars had accessible to them an obvious set of texts that each even hung together clearly as a coherent text, right? This wasn't a case in which open up the tomb, oh, look, there are whatever, you know, 13, 14, 15 comfortably bound volumes there. Let's take them out and right. read them. And, and right. I mean, even deciding what a tech, what constituted an individual text for these documents was its own kind of a challenge and was a, a really substantial amount of work. And you describe um, a lot of elements of that process and scholarship around that process in the volumes themselves in a way that's really fascinating. So let's talk about that a little bit. In, uh, in particular, and specifically, what were some of the most challenging and sort of important and notable aspects of sorting and arranging these texts as texts that were part of the process of working on this project? And, and what do listeners have to know um, from your perspective to appreciate that kind of work and the, the magnitude of that kind of work that went into the finished product that we have here today? Okay, sure. Um, so first, first of all, when the texts were excavated, they were kind of like um, essentially. Um, okay, let's, let's step back and say that the, the texts were originally bound, right? In terms of uh, each scroll was bound by tying strings, um, but of course these strings had long since disintegrated, and so the text became all jumbled together and uh, jumbled uh, in. in internally out of order as well. So you, at excavation, you essentially have this whole um, group of strips that are in, in immersed in water and encased in mud and um, completely out of order. And so once the texts were cleaned and photographed and preserved, um, they had to be um, sorted out. And the first step was to, uh, to sort them into individual texts. Uh, and this was done on the basis of, of some distinctive features of the strips. Of, of the strips. Um, so for one, strip length. Uh, another one is strip end shape. Some of them are flat, some of them are beveled. The number of tie notches and the dis distance between those tie notches. And then finally, the, the structural and the calligraphic features of the graphs themselves. And so... Most of this work, the, the, the editors uh, of the, uh, the, the initial volume that was published in 1998 uh, had already sorted out, um, I think, more or less satisfactorily in terms of assigning the strips to each individual text. Um, there, may, there may be one or two exceptions where um, strips were assigned incorrectly, but for the most part, uh, the strips um, were able to be, be, be sorted into individual texts based on those different features. The biggest problem... Uh, involves the internal ordering of the strips um, because once you have these texts uh, sorted out, you each text has the strips of the of equivalent um, length and features internally. So you have to go entirely by context in determining what the order of the strips are because these strips are not numbered in any way. Um, and in the case of those one or two texts like the Laozi or the Zi where you have um, excavate, uh, received and or other excavated counterparts, um, 
you have a you have a pretty good basis by which to to put that strip the strips back together in the proper order. But with these other texts where you have no uh, means of comparison, you really have to um, rely on on context alone and look look at parallelisms, look where the text may or may not be going. So in the initial volume, the, the editors um, had uh, had done preliminary work on this, and they, they would have blocks of certain strips that that they knew probably were read together in this order, but then the next block would be separated physically to indicate that, well, we don't really know what, what the connection is between this block and the next. And so there remained a lot of work to be done on, on determining what uh, the proper order of the strips might be. Um, and so that's that's been something uh, a lot of us have been involved with over many years, and it really is still ongoing. Um, um, in, in terms of, of determining exactly what the proper order of the strips might be. I think most of the problems are, are, have been sorted out, but there's still, um, even to this day, I, I mean, uh, now my uh, translation has finally been published, but um, I think there's still more work to be done in this regard. Thank you so much. So so once the, um, let, let's say, a scholar has come to a comfortable or at least comfortable enough feeling of what the nature of each text is or that which texts hang together as texts and the arranging and sorting has been done or at least has been done to some degree of satisfaction, there remains the practice and the process of transcribing and then interpreting the graphs. So basically transcribing them as texts and then interpreting and reading and translating the texts. And this is mm-hmm. um, this is what we have uh, so wonderful after the interpretations that you give us in the introduction of these two volumes in these two volumes is a series of transcriptions of translations of and studies of each one of the texts in this collection so um, to get us started in terms of uh, looking at the texts or some of the texts individually first let's start with um, thinking about the processes involved in uh, this project more generally so in your experience going through all these texts and spending through years on this, were there any particularly gratifying and exciting and or particularly challenging aspects of the transcription and interpretation process for you as you worked through the volume? Or is, does anything immediately come to your mind? Um, in terms of my own, my own sort of discoveries and things of that nature, I, I think that what I was just talking about in terms of the strip order was kind of the most interesting aspect of it for me um, in terms of sorting out the puzzles. Um, I, I mentioned this early on at a conference in China that, um, you know, uh, came to the study of the text in the sense that um, I, I mentioned that when I was young, I used to, enjoy playing with puzzles and, 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 and now I still do. I, um, but now that instead of, you know, uh, Puzzle, the game puzzles, it's, it's puzzles involving the sorting of strips um, into uh, into a strip order and things like that. Um, and I've kind of been uh, known for that line ever since because I think it struck a chord with a lot of the scholars there. They can see what, where I'm coming from with that. Um, and uh, so coming to some certain discoveries um, that other scholars had not found um, was really exciting for me. Um, and the, the, there's uh, even my, the most recent one I came to involved uh, an unusual case where in the, in the text Swindai, Honor, Virtue, and Propriety, where the tops of the, where strips themselves had been incorrectly pieced together, but only given a single excavation number. And so everybody overlooked the, 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 the connect, the, the, the possibility that the two strip caps may have uh, been incorrectly pieced together because if you look at the photographs, there really is a gap in between these. Uh, it, you can tell that the strips were broken. And finding that, that once you st- switch the top of a couple of strip halves, the text makes perfect sense. Um, those kinds of discoveries are really exciting for me. Um, uh, Let's actually, yeah, if you mind, um, before we move on, and we'll we'll come back to this general question. Since you mentioned the Zundai, this is one of the texts that you mentioned um, later on in the two volumes. That's actually one of the most understudied texts in the whole corpus, right? So, mm-hmm. um, can you just for listeners explain a little bit about what what kind of text is this, and what is this, so that they can understand um, the the inherent interest, perhaps, of this kind of text for you, and that's related to this discovery of the order of the text himself. Okay, well, this this particular text, um, in many ways, it's, it's kind of a typical Confucian text that it, 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 it 
talks about the relationship between self-cultivation and the education of the populace, the role of the ruler, and the roles of, particularly of, of, of ritual and music in educating the populace and achieving an orderly and harmonious society. Um, it stresses in particular the, the, this idea of a human way, a way that is particular, uh, unique to humans, um, as opposed to, you know, the horses have the, their way, that the, the way of water has its way, and um, everything has a way that's proper to it. And that's uh, no less true of humans, and that takes the form, again, of ritual and music and education um, through means of, of sort of virtue and moral suasion, um, as it were. So that's the kind of the, the emphasis of the text. But the text is, is unique uh, in terms of being a text that is rhymed through, much, through many of its sections, very loose rhyme, um, but uh, it, it, it's very unique in that regard in terms of the, the way that certain sections um, are rhymed. And there's only one other Gordian text, um, aside from the Laozi, that, that, that has um, this much rhyme, uh, that, that one being Yutzong 4. Um, so it's, it's interesting from a number of regards. There's also some, some quotations um, that uh, other texts ascribe to Confucius that are not ascribed in this text but are simply um, brought in um, as, as part of the text. So it's interesting for, for a number of reasons. Um, but it's also the most, uh, one of the most um, complicated texts in terms of sorting out the strip order for. And for I think for that reason, it's been kind of understudied in relation to some of the other texts in the corpus. So let's actually, and I'm going to come back to wanting to hear about some of the other discoveries that you made in this process that were particularly exciting. So we're going to get to that in a moment. Um, but to kind of build on our discussion of this particular text, some of the things that you mentioned that characterize the nature of um, the kinds of issues that come up in this zundai, or honoring virtue and propriety, are, are issues that also come up in some of the other texts. And this actually really nicely brings us to one of the questions that I uh, wanted to ask you relating to one of the kinds of phenomena you talk about in the introductory matter of the volumes. So you talk in the introductory matter um, to the transcription and translation themselves about the Guadian corpus as a corpus, right? And there's some things mm. that are common enough across the texts that are included in the Guadian corpus that make it feel like a coherent corpus. And then again, at the same time, there are aspects of this text as a collection that resist um, a simple classification as a corpus. So can you talk about that a little bit? What um, For listeners who are interested in this as a coherent group, what are some of the things that make this a coherent corpus? And what are there some of the things um, that we need to keep in mind that would lead us to resist that kind of a classification? Okay, well, the, I think the main reason why we can... I mean, this is a fundamental question that we need to ask to begin with when we're trying to analyze the text as a group at all. Is there, is there, is there any basis for doing that? Because simply because they're found together in the same tomb doesn't mean that uh, they, they necessarily share anything in common with one another. Just like, you know, some, we may have a random collection of books in our own library um, or in our, in our own study that um, uh, in some ways uh, maybe show our, our, our uh, common interest, that, uh, but are all, each written by different authors per se. But with the Guardian text, uh, um, not all of them, obviously, but the certain core group does seem to have some very per particular overlaps that are um, somewhat beyond coincidence. Um, and so I would say, in terms of certain shared language and specific phrases um, that you see between uh, some of these texts, um, you know, beyond core philosophical ideas that seem to be shared. Um, but the, the specific phrases themselves um, are what really stands out to, to make us think that um, these texts may have shared a very a common origin in terms of their um, sort of intellectual lineage that produced them. Um, and you actually, um, just to pick up on, again, something that you uh, just mentioned, you mentioned there were, beside the fact that there were some shared philosophical concepts and philosophical doctrines in some of the texts, the yeah. shared phrases um, indicate that some of them hang together. Um, what, uh, just to to push on this a little bit, and then we can come back to what makes these incoherent, perhaps, as, as a group, um, yeah. 
you mention uh, in the introductory matter or in this um, d uh, discussion of the importance of the text and the nature of the text early in the volume that there are four of these shared philosophical doctrines in particular that we see fairly fairly consistently throughout the text. So heaven and human endowment, paths to virtuous cultivation, education, mm. moral suasion, and the role of tradition, and finally musical harmony and the symphony of virtues. Now mm. these kinds of shared philosophical concerns are also philosophical concerns that are shared with some of the other material that's not in the Guodian corpus that makes these texts relevant and important to a much wider scholarly field of early Chinese studies. Are mm -hmm. there particular texts in the corpus and particular texts that you translated that you find are especially important in terms of the wider scholarly field of early Chinese studies that change or transform or add a really important special contribution to that wider scholarly field surrounding um, the history of Chinese philosophy? Sure. Yeah, I, I would say that um, in general, so uh, so these texts um, in many ways are like any other Confucian texts uh, of the period. They, they, these, those four areas that you just mentioned are typical of, of, of sort of any uh, Confucian um text from the warring state um, and in particular some of the texts that have been associated um, rightly or not with with Zizi and, and that whole tradition um, texts like the Zhongyong things like that but um, what is interesting about these texts is that I think they're they they, they you can see how later debates um are sort of incipient or they're, they're pointing towards later debates over things like human nature. What, what exactly is human nature? Um, is it good? Is it bad? The kind of the, the Mencius streams of debate that you'll, you'll see later on, but you can also see in these texts that that, that is never addressed explicitly. Um, you can see different ways, texts like Xing Chu and Wu Xing, right? The, the, Xing Ming Shu, the heaven derives uh, via mandate, or Wu Xing, the five conducts, are pointing to that uh, that kind of problem in different ways, but never really get there. So it's these, from that a aspect, they're in, useful to try and um, understand uh, sort of the the prehistory of that debate, because we really don't have reliable text um, from the period between or be, uh, before before Mencius came onto the scene. Um, and it seems most likely that these texts did uh, pre predate Mencius by by uh, a few years, anyway. Um, how far back we don't really know. Um, but there's also some texts that that are more startling. Um, Tang Yu Zhao, the Way of Tang Yu, for example, and that it this is a text that really extols the the ideal of abdication. Um, and we really don't see any other text uh, in the received tradition that that extol that idea. They were kind of lost to us in the tradition. And if you look at the uh, uh, the way later Confucian texts uh, would treat that concept, um, it's 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 very much a, a negative or a problem to be explained away. Um, why is it that Yao ceded the empire to Xun? Um, did he really do that? Um, is that a model that we're supposed to follow in the current age? And you see Mencius uh, trying to tiptoe around that problem. Um, Xun's vehement, very vehemently going uh, against that idea of abdication. And so this gives us a text uh, that we really don't see anything reflected in, in that in the, in the received tradition, and it gives us a, a whole new set of problems to, to think about and and under, try and understand the historical context for. Now you just mentioned um, this text, the Xing Ming Chu, the human nature comes via mandate text, mm -hmm. being particularly interesting. And, and you um, write in the book about the fact that this text has already attracted a great deal of attention. And I'd actually love um, to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on it, specifically because you did mention earlier on in our conversation that you came to Chinese um, studies initially out of an interest in music, right? And this is one of the mm -hmm. texts that speaks um, particularly to uh, the prominence of the role of music and the importance of the role of music in human education. So could you talk about that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. It's, um, so music is, is important in, in early Confucian thought for a number of reasons. Um, 
there are, there's a number of different aspects uh, to that idea, right? So this notion of yuya, which is also the same term as la, happiness, um, kind of a combination of both the sense of music and happiness, um, is often used as a metaphor in, in early uh, Confucian thought as this um, representative of the highest state of, of attainment that one might aspire to. Um and you, you see that reflected in, in, in the Analects of Confucius. Um, you see that reflected in a text like Wu Xing, where you know someone who hears the way and um, finds happiness in it or musicality in it is one who is fond of virtuosity. It's kind of the, the conclusion of the text. The state, this idea that once one has fully embodied virtue with, 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 within himself um, and is able to express that spontaneously in everything. Um, that this that the person does um, is one who has attained this this ultimate state that is very much like a state of musical cultivation and you can you, you, having performed instruments yourself you you, have a, you you probably have a good sense of how when you master a piece of music um, how that kind of feeling of a spontaneously flowing uh, performance um, could represent that kind of ultimate state of, of, of attainment and um, for Confucian Confucian thinkers is very much this, this idea of, of ultimate virtuous attainment represented representing a similar state. So I guess the second sense of music as it appears in these these texts or in Confucian thought more generally is that um, the, the fact that music is thought to have stemmed from our affections authentically. Um, when we create music, we're really reaching deep down within. It also has to this miraculous ability to turn around and incite um the hearts and minds of others directly and immediately. And so from that standpoint, it was viewed along with ritual as a sort of complementary aspect to ritual as um, the, the sort of the supreme tools of education for educating the populace and bringing them into this, into a state of order and uniformity and, and not, not uniformity, it's order and harmony. Um, and so Xing Zimingshu has, has statements like, um, you know, music has, has for long occupied the rhythm of our affections. Um, it's return to goodness and recollections of beginning is conscientious and it's bringing forth of affections and it's still in a propriety moves in accord with human nature. Um, and uh, this is how it brings order to virtue. And, and statements like this, um, talk, talking about how um, music really has this very direct and immediate impact on us um, in ways that, that um, you would see, um, you know, precede what you would find in the streams of some very similar um, ideas uh, about why music is the supreme um, educational tool. And finally, I think this idea that, that music in itself um, is achieved by uh, means of a harmonious balance of disparate constituent parts, right? You have this combination of different instruments, of different timbres, different tones, um, all operating in harmonious tandem with one with each other um, in accord with a unifying rhythm. And this is the way that society should work. There are different roles um, to be played by each member, but they are all to work together into a, in a harmonious unity. Um, and, yeah, these these ideas are expressed in both in both Xing Zimingchu and, and Wu Xing, and and um, they they in ways that that, that uh, both uh, echo and um, uh, precede further debates on this in in, in the Warring States. Um, Thank you. Um, and just uh, along these lines, just because I'm, I'm curious, since music is not just a focus of this particular text, but you do mention that it comes up elsewhere in the corpus, and since you've already mentioned um, your interest early on in music and music studies, do you still play any instruments? I do. What? I do. I play. What do you play? I play guitar. I play guitar, and we actually have a band um, uh, that I've uh, kind of, we, we sort of assembled post uh, uh Post tenure, um, and that's, so um, that's one of the one of the one of the things that uh, um, like to do outside of, of, of scholarship. We have a band uh, called the Funk Upstairs. Um, so I'm gonna, I'll give a shout out to them. To, to hi John, Wes, and Eric. Um, so yeah, we, um, we, we, I, I still do that. So it's a, it's an important part of my life, and um, you know, it, 
for the reasons that the, the Gordian text uh, mentioned. Good. I'm a banjo player myself, so. All right. <laughs> Big fan. Do you find at all, and then we'll get back to um, the specificities of the corpus itself, but because, again, early on, um, we kind of mentioned that the study of language and the study of music are somewhat inherently related. Um, I think for those of us who, who do both, and even just conceptually, and music is such an important part of what's going on in this corpus, do you find at all that your work as a musician impacted or shaped in any way your work on these texts and your work as a translator or as an interpreter of um, of these documents? Well, I think so. I think, uh, well, for one, I guess my interpretation of, of, of how the role music plays in these texts, for one, my understanding of what um, how music works and, and, and uh, how it's put together and, and, and all that uh, directly in that way, but also in a lot of intangible ways that are very hard for me to describe. Just the way that I, you know, go about analyzing a, 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 a piece of music, whether it's, um, whether it's a classical piece of music or, or doing a jazz transcription um, and trying to figure out what's going on there. Um, Shapes, I think, the way I, I go about the process of um, understanding these texts, but in a way that's very um, intangible and hard for me to describe. But I think it, it, it shapes my whole analytic way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's totally fascinating to me. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about um, some of the texts in particular, and we've talked about some of the things that link the texts together as a kind of coherent body, or at least as an arguably having some kind of coherence. Aside from the fact that, um, you know, the fact that they were all, as you mentioned, in the same tomb doesn't necessarily make them hang together as any kind of a coherent unit. Are there other elements of the Guadian text as a group of texts that actively work against our considering them to be part of some kind of coherent group or coherent corpus? Is there anything that undermines, basically, um, the, the sense of coherence that we should bring to understanding these as a group? Oh, sure, yeah. I, I mean, and, and I would not say that all the texts are should be considered as part of the same group. Um, the Laozi texts, for one, uh, offer a philosophy that's that's very much different from uh what we're what we're calling the confucian texts of the corpus um and really would be really, really hard to reconcile with them as part of the same philosophy so there i think it's it's obvious that there that, that we cannot consider the entire group as, as a coherent group and i, I wouldn't want to even say with the texts that, that that are in many ways coherent group um they're all they are, are also individual texts and they each speak to their own um own set of ideas so where they may very well have sort of a generally common intellectual stem from a common intellectual lineage um they may also have different individual authors um so i want to i don't want to stress too much um the commonality but the commonality is definitely worth noting and there are there are again there are certain uh, uncanny degrees of overlap with very idiosyncratic language that that makes us speak to um, have to speak to them to some degree um, uh, in, ter- in terms of the commonality but there's the, the differences are are equally worth emphasizing now you just mentioned the Laozi texts these are um, the first texts that actually are featured in the series of translations and just transcriptions, and you include Laozi A, B, and C. Um, you mention here that this is an extraordinarily important aspect of the Guodian corpus. So can you talk about the importance of the Laozi text specifically for a little bit? Right. Um, well, so they're, they're important because they're the, this, the only um, warring states period um, Laozi text that, that we have. Um, but it's also very problematic in terms of what exactly are they, because it's it's and we have three different texts um, together constitute about 40% of the received Laozi or Tao Te Ching. And so the question is, what do we have here? Is this, are these sort of materials that would, that were kind of floating around and would later be combined together um, along with other materials to form the, the Tao Te Ching as we now know it, um, which some scholars, that's a theory that some scholars uh, ascribe to, or is it, more in the nature of are these selections from a more or less intact or per, perhaps let's say partially or a, a precursor to the 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 laws that we now have um, are these selections therefrom 
um, which is it's the model that I would lean toward primarily because um, it would be an amazing coincidence that all of these uh, the sections from all of the passages from these three texts would happen to make their way into the received laudza um, is too much of a coincidence um, for me to, to, to accept. Um, now, of course, you could say that, well, the Tai Shangshui materials were originally most likely bundled together with the materials, the passages in Lao Tzu C. Um, and you could say, well, look, see, these these are not part of the Lao Tzu, and that undermines my argument. But the fact that, well, for one, those materials are concentrated within Lao Tzu C, and they're structurally very different from the passages um, that we find in, in Lao Tzu C, that um, it, there, there's a lot of argument to saying that the Tai Shangshui materials can be grouped together as their own as a separate text of sorts. But in any case, everything from Lao Tzu A and Lao Tzu B is found in the received Tao Te Ching. Um, so, so I, I'm more inclined to, to the model. Again, it's, 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 it's a question that uh, we can't really resolve at this point, but I'm more inclined to the model that these are selections taken from a larger work that, that um, more resembles what we receive, find in the received Lao Tzu and taken for some particular purpose that we don't really know um, and and reassembled into these three different texts along with the Tai Shangshui materials. Now, the Tai Shangshui um, materials, this is actually the text that comes right after um, in your trans- transcription and translation, um, the Lao Tzu texts. And do you want to speak a little bit to that text? Because it's actually super fascinating from the perspective of the history of cosmology and the history of water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Tai Shangshui, the, 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 the great unity gives birth to water. Um, yeah, it's a text that, again, it's bundled together with the passages of, of, of Lao Tzu Sea. Um, and it's a text that seems to be divided into two halves, or can be divided fairly easily into two halves. The first of which pre- presents this cosmology, um, starting out with the idea that uh, Tai, or the great unity, gives birth to water, which in turn gives birth to um you know, uh, forget the exact order, but yin and yang, the four seasons, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it goes on th- through this process of, of generation. So you get to the four seasons, and then the four seasons circulate, and um, they're kind of, uh, the, the year is produced, and the cycle goes onward, and um, water is, in a sense, also stored in and mobilized in the four seasons. Um, so it's, it's a unique cosmology um from the standpoint of the role that water plays in it, um, we really don't find anything quite like it um, in the received tradition. Uh, yeah. And so we've talked a little bit about um, a number of the different individual texts, and we can get back to some of them in a bit, um, depending on the time we have. But I want to, for a moment, uh, and thank you for explaining a little bit about the uh, great unity gives birth to water text, because I think this is just kind of incidentally as a verbal footnote, this is one of many, many, many examples um, in this collection of texts that are potentially of really wide and deep interest, even to scholars who, you know, in fact, may not primarily work on China, but are interested in the histories of cosmology, histories of water, histories of other elements that, um, elements, no pun intended, right, that um, a lot of these texts actually engage. And the fact that you've given us here a translation into English makes them accessible in a completely new way for scholars who may not have a facility with Chinese. But um, you do have quite a facility with Chinese, and you've talked about um, at least one of the cases in which you you know, you discovered something about the text when we were talking about this, um, I think the Zundai text, the text um, honoring virtue and propriety that uh, was particularly exciting. Were there any other moments that stand out for you that um, were involved in the process of your transcription and translation that were moments of discovery for you that um, particularly excited you? Um, yeah, I'm not sure what I could point to uh, specifically, but there are, I mean, there are cases where um, I would say that uh, uh, I would was able to in, um, necessarily interpret many graphs um, themselves in terms of, of uh, the actual um, or finding, uh, reading a, a, a graph in terms of its modern equivalent, um, uh, the way that, that you know, um, 
the Chinese paleographers have. But in terms of actually reading those graphs, once that they are interpreted and coming up with new readings for certain graphs in context, um, I think there's a few places where I, um, I thought, you know, I've, I've probably come up with a, a reading that, that makes more sense than other, anything else I've found um, at that point. There's, there's, a, there's a, you know, a few places like that that I that, that are very satisfying when you when um, you come up with at least a what is a, um, to me is a strong possibility that this is the reading that, that should occur within that context. Um, so there are those instances, but again, I think the the, the issues of the strip order. Um, are for me have been the most satisfying because of finding a couple, you know, some places where I think there is actually absolutely no ambiguity in terms of um, once once you make those changes in strip order, the, the, the many problems are solved. Um, so those have probably been the most um, rewarding aspects for me in terms of making discoveries. Now, bef- I, before we um, come to a close and I let you go, I can't let you go without asking you about uh, the kinds of texts in here that you refer to as, quote, without doubt, the most enigmatic works in the entire Guadian corpus, because I am a sucker for enigmas. I love enigmas. Uh-huh. And so, and this is a really, really fascinating part of um, these two volumes. And I'm talking specifically about the Yutong texts, the thicket of mm-hmm. sayings texts. And for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to see the volume, Volumes, um, you include four different um, thicket of sayings texts in here, one, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. The fourth one uh, you have briefly indicated before um, is notable because it was rhymed. It was one of the rhymed texts in the corpus. Um, right. The other three as well are really interesting. So can you speak a little bit to these texts? What makes them um, the most enigmatic works in the corpus? And what is particularly exciting and interesting about them for you? Um, I would say they're probably enigmatic. Well, first of all, because they're very brief, they're, they're brief aphorisms, and there's, so there's not much context uh, in terms of being able to figure out what exactly they are referring to. Um, some of them are, are fairly straightforward, but many of them um, not so. And even you know, uh, recurring characters that, in certain instances, with the lack of context. Um, makes it impossible to determine exactly how this character is to be read. And part of that lack of context for Yutong 1 through 3, 3 stems from the fact that these strips are not contiguously written. Um, in other words, one passage may occupy two strips uh, or a strip and a half. And once that passage is, is done, the next passage starts at the beginning of the next strip. So finding out the, the um, internal order between these individual passages is very difficult. But also between one strip and the next um, – because there are many uh, sort of parallel uh, statements and trying to figure out uh, which strip goes with which is, is really thorny in this, in this, uh, in these use home texts. Um, so from that standpoint, they're just um, the problems of interpretation are boundless and just the nature of them themselves are, um, are uh, as these really uh, sort of pithy aphorisms that, that may reflect some ideas found elsewhere in the text, but really um, need further context to understand, um, make them very, very enigmatic. Um, mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Now we've talked about, before I, uh, we, we move to the close and I let you go, we've talked about, um, again, a number of the texts that are translated and collected in the volume. We've talked about a lot of elements of the process. Are there any other specific texts that are included in this volume that we haven't had a chance to talk about, um, but that you are particularly excited by and that you'd like to mention um, for listeners who may not um, know anything about these texts or, or who may, but may not realize that these texts are, or this, uh, well, one or two specific texts are particularly interesting for you. Um, well, there's other texts like, uh, 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 which a very short text, but which is very um, interesting in terms of the way that it offers this ideal of very frank admonition um, that one should consistently mention his ruler's faults, for instance. Um, other texts such as uh, the way of loyalty and trust um, that, that speak different ways to this, maybe the changing role of ruler-minister relations in early China. Um, so I think those texts are very interesting from that standpoint. Um, also, Liuda, the Six Virtues, which uh, seems to place very clear priority of family loyalty over loyalty to the state um, in a way that um, is not 
quite emphasized in, uh, to that degree in other uh, in other texts from the period. So those are all very interesting from from, from different standpoints. And again, the uh, the thicket of sayings number four, Yitzhong four, is 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 a particular favorite of mine because um, it's 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 different from the other three Yitzhong texts. Um, in that it doesn't really seem to refer to other texts of the, of the corpus per se, and it's um, it's also written contiguously, um, so it's a little bit easier to figure out the, the order of the text. But uh, essentially, because it has these um, uh, it, it, it these it consists of almost folksy adages and, and bits of wisdom um, and a kind of a hodgepodge of things, but it's rhymed throughout. And um, so there's some very memorable lines um, throughout the text. Um, and so I think anybody who uh, uh, wants to come uh, take a look at these texts, uh, maybe one place to uh, one of the more entertaining uh, texts uh, um, to, to start with. Um, you have, um, and then there's one one uh, passage uh, in particular that has a parallel in the received uh, corpus, and that was with the Zhuangzi. Is this one about you know this famous line about those who steal belt hooks are executed, while those who steal states are made feudal lords, for instance. <laughs> and and then another passage or two along those lines. Um, and um, you know uh, other other. Bits of wisdom like, you know, if, if a mountain has no foothills, it will collapse. If a city wall has no thatch, it will collapse. If a scholar friend, if a scholar Aaron has no friends, he will not pass and things like that. Um, so very uh, interesting bits of wisdom um, found throughout that text as well. So um, it, it, it altogether, you, you really have a whole a whole variety of things in, in the Guadian text. Again, you have this core of text, uh, Confucian text, that, that, that seem to uh, adhere together in, in certain ways, in interesting ways, but you also have these other variety of texts that, that present a somewhat different picture. So I think the Guadian texts are, are very rich from that standpoint and will continue to occupy scholars' attention for, for, for years to come. And that's really the goal of, of, of this study is to um, to make that more accessible to to other scholars um, and uh, who might not be able to to uh, uh, wade through this um, uh, this vast amount of these vast amount of materials that, uh, that that's out there and try and make it more more manageable for people to to actually utilize these texts and, and try and um, see how they might fit into the intellectual historical picture of early China or um, in philosophy more generally. Great. And there's also, um, it's not just for scholars too, it's also for teachers. So there's a whole, I'll, I'll mention for listeners, um, after the, this uh, collection of detailed transcriptions and translations and very um, amply footnoted uh, translations of these texts, there's also a section at the end of the second volume that's a running translation of the text, which makes it actually really fluid and really uh, wonderfully accessible to assign to undergraduate uh, students as well in an undergraduate classroom. And so that's, I think that's another really fabulous aspect of the volumes. Yeah, we wanted to make sure that that was that that running translation was in there, um, so that precisely for that reason, um, that um, undergraduates um, or uh, other interested parties could use that without um, all the scholarly apparatus, and then may have something that they could, um, you know, uh, a, a, a section of the a text that they could utilize without having to uh, to, to to purchase the entire t- uh, entire work. So Scott, um, I've taken up a lot of your time, um, but I'm I'm happy to have done so in this case because it's such an extraordinary accomplishment and it's such an extraordinarily important resource. And as we've talked about, not just for scholars, but certainly for scholars, but also for teachers and for just interested readers. Um, and so I'm really delighted that we've had the chance to talk about this. Now, of course, uh, we talked about various aspects of the volumes, but there's a ton of material in here that we didn't have a chance to get to. Is there anything in particular about anything about the volumes, about the process, about the work itself that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like um, to mention for listeners and perhaps in particular for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to consult the text? Well, no, I would, the only thing I would want to add is that, again, this, uh, I, not all the problems have been solved. These, uh, the, 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 and uh, you know, n- n- nor will they ever all all be solved. Um, there's uh, this process of, of, of as more texts are being discovered, more manuscripts are being unearthed. I'm sure some of these interpretations will change. So, um, 
I want to stress that aspect that while I think um, I've the, the, the work represents the state of knowledge of these texts we have and, and, and presents a, 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 a pretty coherent picture of these texts, there are still some um, a number of problems that, that have to be worked out. Um, and I think uh, our understanding of these texts will continue to evolve. Um, but in the meantime, I hope that the people uh, that are interested may uh, um, read through the book and um, or those uh, those parts of the book that interest them. And um, I, I'm looking forward to getting more feedback on it in the future. So now that the volumes are out, again, congratulations on the volumes. What's next for you? Are there any projects right now that are currently inspiring you? Um, well, the first thing was to uh, to take a take a break. Yeah. Um, which, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I continue to work work, work on excavated texts, um, uh, the, the the materials from the Shanghai Museum and from the from the Qinghua uh, collection. These um, and. I, I won't get into what those are, but the, uh, other than to say that those are uh, texts from the same region that have been subsequently discovered, but are not archaeologically excavated. They were um, they were robbed from tombs and later sold. Um, so, in, in many ways, they're 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 not as valuable uh, as the Guadian texts from that standpoint, and um, but still very um, rich in what they have to offer. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to work on the excavated text, but I also have a project on um, that I, I started for a while and, and have, have, uh, continuing uh, now and then as is, is, is time permits is this um, study of um, alcohol in early China, uh, drinking in early China, which is, a, I think, an interesting topic that um, uh, may in some ways uh, parallel the, the, the work I've done on music in early China um, um, before. Um, so that's an interesting topic for me, and I'm going to um, continue to work on that um, as time permits. Fabulous. And so when that's out, I will be in your email inbox again and asking you to talk about that because that sounds like another really, really great project. All right. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Scott. It's really been a pleasure. Um, and I'm really delighted again that you have made the time to talk. So thank you. Well, thanks, Carla. Pleasure's all mine. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>